The Afghan government was funded to the tune of billions by the US. It's army trained and equipped by NATO. Yet after two decades of occupation, within two weeks, it crumbled. Some might see this as calls to doubt the wisdom of so-called humanitarian intervention. Not so Britain's MPs. For seven hours today, all but a small minority argued that Afghan war could have been won if only we stayed a little longer. I'll be discussing the debate with Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm very well, Michael. I'm very happy that we could do the show today. Very happy. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on this Wednesday. It's, it's, it, it, it seems fitting to have you on because I think you're going to have some fantastic critiques of the fantasy world, I think, that we, that we saw in, in the House of Commons today. I will also be speaking tonight to a journalist in Kabul about recent commitments made by the Taliban, speak to an expert about Priti Patel's miserly offer to migrants, and we end the show by discussing an extraordinary interview with the head of the British Army. As ever, you can tweet on the hashtag TiskySour with your comments and questions or comment under this video. And of course, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Today, Parliament was recalled for the first time since 2014 to debate the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. It was a difficult debate for Boris Johnson, with many in his own party critical of his handling of the situation. And Keir Starmer took the opportunity to go in on the attack. I want to address directly all those who served in Afghanistan and their families, especially the families of those who were lost. Your sacrifice was not in vain. Your sacrifice was not in vain. You brought stability, reduced the terrorist threat, and enabled progress. We are all proud of what you did. Your sacrifice deserves better than this, and so do the Afghan people. Mr Speaker, there's been a major miscalculation of the resilience of the Afghan forces and staggering complacency from our government about the Taliban threat. The result is that the Taliban are now back in control of Afghanistan. The gains made through 20 years of sacrifice hang precariously. Women and girls fear for their liberty. Afghan civilians are holding onto the undercarriage of NATO aircraft, literally clinging to departing hope. And we face new threats to our security and an appalling humanitarian crisis. Keir Starmer also accused both Boris Johnson and Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab of complacency for being on holiday when Kabul fell. Yet it wasn't just opposition MPs who decried the situation. Tom Tugendhat is the Tory chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee and an Afghan veteran. He won applause across the House for this speech. Like many veterans, this last week has been one that has seen me struggle through anger and grief and rage. The feeling of abandonment of not just a country, but the sacrifice that my friends made. I've been to funerals from Poole to Dunblane. I've watched good men go into the earth, taking with them a part of me and a part of all of us. And this week has torn open some of those wounds, left them raw, left us all hurting. And I know it's not just soldiers. I know aid workers and diplomats who feel the same. I know journalists who've been the witnesses to our country in its heroic effort to save people from the most horrific fates. In the year that I was privileged to be the advisor to the governor of Helmand, we opened girls' schools. And the joy it gave parents to see their little girls going to school was extraordinary, and I didn't understand it until I took my own daughter to school. The second image is one that the forever war that has just reignited could lead to. It is the image of a man whose name I never knew, carrying a child who had died hours earlier, carrying this child into our firebase and begging for help. 
Now, there was nothing we could do. It was over. Because, Mr. Speaker, this is what defeat looks like. It's when you no longer have the choice as to how to help. This doesn't need to be defeat. But at the moment, damn well feels like it. Throughout the debate, in responding to criticisms such as those you've just seen, Boris Johnson argued that Britain had little agency in events once Biden had made his decision. Here he answers a question from former Prime Minister Theresa May. But will he please set out when he first spoke personally to Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, to discuss with him the possibility of putting together an alliance of other forces in order to replace the American support in Afghanistan. I have to, I'm, I'm grateful to my right honourable friend. I spoke to, uh, to Secretary General Stoltenberg only the, the other day about NATO's continuing role in Afghanistan. But I really think that, I really think that it is uh, an illusion uh, to believe that there is appetite amongst any of our partners for a continued military uh, presence or, or, the, or for a military solution. ...of British troops uh, to fight the Taliban is an option that no matter how sincerely people may advocate it, and I, and I appreciate their sincerity, but I do not believe that that is an option that would commend itself either to the British people or, Mr Speaker, to this House. Boris Johnson there saying that the House of Commons would not support um, Britain going back into Afghanistan. But the consensus in the room definitely appeared to be that the Afghanistan war as a whole was a good thing. It, it was a fight for freedom and a fight for progress. And the problem was the nature of the withdrawal. Aaron, what did you make of what we saw today in the House of Commons? I mean, it was just pathetic, wasn't it? It was pathetic. So much of it was pathetic. And I, the Tom Tugan hat intervention, you know, yes, of course, 457 UK military personnel died, aid workers have made huge sacrifices, and obviously their families now, quite rightly, are thinking, what was that all for? Was it for anything whatsoever? Many more people have PTSD, lost limbs, their lives changed forever. I don't think it was for anything. Now, we don't know. Over the next couple of years, there may be contestation within Afghanistan for the kind of country it wants to be, and forces within civil society take it in a good direction. And maybe that wouldn't have happened without intervention. You know, that will take 20, 30, 40 years for it to work itself out. But at present, I, I clearly think it's inarguable, if you were to do the accounting right now, that it was for nothing. And actually, if anything, we've taken Afghanistan backwards at a cost of $2 trillion, at a cost of 457 UK personnel, at a cost of more than 100,000 Afghan people's lives. Why is this happening? Why is Tom Tugendhat doing sort of, you know, effectively confusing the House of Commons for a therapy session. Well, because Joe Biden, who's the United States president, followed the commitment by Donald Trump, who had a deal with the Taliban in February last year to withdraw by this symbolic date of September 11th, 2021, 20 years after the 9-11 attacks. That was the deal between Trump, his predecessor, and between the Taliban. And Biden stuck with that date. He stuck with the plan. It wasn't like he was just, he was left with that plan and he had no choice. And he stuck with that plan because it was very popular. Two thirds of Republican voters backed that plan in February 2020. 60% of Democratic voters backed that plan. There is simply not the appetite amongst the American public for war. There isn't. And so Biden, if he wanted to be elected, had to do what he did. And if he wants to be re-elected in three years time, he couldn't have changed course on this. 100% he could not have changed course on this. And all the people whinging about failure of American leadership would be the exact same ones saying, how did Trump come to power in three years time if Biden changed his mind on this? So the, the fundamental reason why this is happening is that an American president had to do this because of changes in public attitudes towards intervention, particularly in Iraq, amongst the voting public. Now, can we stay in Afghanistan without the Americans? It is probably one of the most delusional ridiculous, unhinged, unevidenced, maniacal, hubristic things I've ever, ever, ever heard emanate from the mouth of a British politician. And there were a few of them that said it. Lisa Nandy has sort of implied it. You had Tobias Elwood, who's a, a Tory MP for, for Bournemouth, say it. It is a ridiculous thing, Theresa May said it, to think that Britain could lead a coalition to police a country which has been at war for 40 years, the other side of the world, which has a population of 40 million, which is landlocked, and which probably has the highest density of light firearms among the population anywhere on earth. If I get my bike stolen in Hackney, 
I'm not going to get anything more than a, a, a crime reference number from the police. But the likes of Tugendhat and Theresa May and Tobias Elwood think we can run a country the other side of the planet. Unbelievably out of touch. Unbelievably out of touch. And the only reason why they think we can do this without the Americans is because they still believe in this imperial idea of Britain, which was reformulated in the war on terror. And the, the, the fundamental truth is, Michael, Britain is a country of 65 million people. It's quite wealthy, but it's got relatively limited resources. It is not China. It is not the United States. It is not the European Union. It's not even Russia. And it's certainly not a country like Iran in the region because it's, it's not as near. So we're a small player here in this context. We aren't this big player. It's not the 19th century. And I find it frankly ridiculous that 80 years after the Second World War, we have British politicians still behaving like this. And one thing that Boris Johnson said, and I, I agree with it, we went to Afghanistan, and it's important to say the Iraq war was an illegal war. The war in Afghanistan actually had certain, a certain legal basis, I believe, which emanates effectively from the proviso around NATO and, and collective security. Right. We could have that debate. You might think it's wrong. I thought it was wrong, but at least it made a bit more sense than, than Iraq. That happened because of 9-11. It was initiated by an American government. If an American government, which, which was suffered the initial attack, which provided the overwhelming majority of, of, of forces, of resources, of political, military support, if they pull out, there's no mission anymore. And it's important to say, Michael, on the 9-11 on the attacks of the 19 bombers, 50, 15 were from Saudi Arabia, none were from Afghanistan. But in any case, that happened in New York. It didn't happen in London. So there is absolutely no basis for British soldiers to be there. I don't think there ever was. It's, it's evaporated over the course of the weekend. But for these people to feel important, they have to create this completely senseless idea of Britain and its role in the world, which has absolutely no relationship whatsoever to reality. And most people know this, most people recognize it, but they're enabled by, I think, the most corrupt, venal, fetid, ignorant media in the West. And I'm talking about the British media, which is almost as bloodthirsty as most of our politicians. There does seem to be a kind of desperation, I think, among MPs and and the media class, whereby they kind of recognize they're out of step with public opinion. So they have to go into overdrive to create this sort of new counter reality, whereby it's the complete consensus that liberal intervention works. And any civilized person would believe that you should invade other countries to protect the rights of women, except well, to protect the rights of women. Obviously, that's not what normally happens when you invade another country. We'll, we'll move on from that. But they are so terrified that this isn't popular. They just, they, they just have to lock out any other opinion as being beyond the pale. And, you know, it, it, it was odd in, in the clips that we showed you that I do think that probably Boris Johnson's intervention was closest to the public's position, even if it was a massive minority in the House. We should clarify, obviously, NATO can't make any intervention legal by international law. But Boris Johnson was saying, or well, I mean, he's correct to say that by NATO treaties, we were obliged to, to intervene in Afghanistan. But obviously, you know, alliances can't make um, wars legal. I want to talk about the differences that have emerged between the Labour Party and the Democrats in the United States, because this is really, really stark. Labour's commitment to liberal intervention has been completely unswerving. You saw it today in the House of Commons. You've seen it in all of the interventions from Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy over the past week or so. And Joe Biden is saying precisely the opposite. He's saying liberal intervention hasn't worked and it's over. This was the US president on Monday. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war when Afghan troops will not? How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Mistake of staying and fighting indefinitely in a conflict that is not in the national interest of the United States, of doubling down on a civil war in a foreign country, of attempting to remake a country through the endless military deployments of U.S. forces. Those are the mistakes we cannot continue to repeat. Now compare that statement to this from Keir Starmer in the House of Commons today. Recent events in Afghanistan shame the West, not just the scenes of chaos, but what it says about our abandonment of the Afghan people. For those brave people around the world, living under regimes, paying scant regard to human rights, but resisting those regimes in pursuit of democracy, equality, and individual freedom. What does this say to them? 
What does this retreat from freedom signal to those prepared to stand up for it? What does this surrender to extremism mean for those prepared to face it down? And what does it mean for those nations who support an international rules-based system when we hand over power to those who recognise no rules at all? That is the challenge of our time. The challenge of our time is a struggle between those who follow the rules and those who recognise no rules. And the role of military intervention is to expand freedom. Biden, in that first clip, sounded like someone who'd learnt from the past 20 years. Keir Starmer sounded, I mean, he sounded like he could have just borrowed that speech from Tony Blair in 1999 or something. Aaron, Aaron I want to bring you in on this. Are you, are you surprised at this breach which has emerged between Keir Starmer, who tends to like to, you know, suggest that he is of the same ilk as Joe Biden, to say I'm taking inspiration from him. But whereas Joe Biden, I mean, did used to be very hawkish, and now he does seem to have to some degree, moved on. Keir Starmer is very much stuck in, I mean, really the hubristic days of, of Tony Blair thinking we can reshape the world in whatever image we please. Would you know who sounded like Joe Biden was Boris Johnson? Boris Johnson was effectively saying, this is not pragmatic. It was their mission, they've ended it. That's, that's life. And I think that, like we said before, that was much closer to the British electorate. I think what Biden has said is hugely popular with Republican Democrat swing voters, right? Everybody loves to talk about these people in an election. But actually, in between elections, they don't like to talk about the things that matter to them politically. I think, you know, he, he like I say, he couldn't have been re-elected without doing this. And the last neocons, the last, and the, and the Labour Party has neocons, it also has liberal interventionists, they're not the same thing, although they sometimes feel like it. The last liberal interventionists and neocons now in mainstream politics is in the Labour Party, right? The Tories, they care about levelling up, they care about winning, they want to keep these northern seats they've just won, they want to keep the southern seats where the Lib Dems are looking like they could give them a real fight. They're, they're worried about the union. They would want to focus on building a post-Brexit economy and they want to get rich. That's what Tories want to do. They want to look after their mates. And they're looking at these adventures abroad from 20 years ago. Like, we have had enough of this. There's nothing to be gained from it. And you had the Labour Party. Like you say, it's kind of rinse, repeat. He basically could have, he sounds like a kind of the B-side of Tony Blair, right? And apparently Keir Starmer opposed war in Iraq. On the one hand, Michael, work, work this out for me. He's saying, might doesn't make right. Right? You can't just come to power and seize power and that be viewed as legitimate. Mike doesn't make right, but we can invade a country because Mike doesn't make right. This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And he's talking about all these countries that are desperately seeking freedom. What? The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? And this is going to pose really interesting questions now for the British political establishment, Michael. Functionally, we might be looking at if the Taliban aren't as bad as the worst case scenario, which is not you know, likely, but I'm just saying. Functionally, we may be looking at a regime which is quite similar to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia until quite recently, I think now they can drive, until recently couldn't drive, couldn't vote, couldn't be political representatives, couldn't go into the same shopping malls as men, right? At one point couldn't have 3G phones. You know, you could have a functionally similar regime. One is our ally and our, and their, and our flag flies at half mast when their sovereign dies. The other is the enemy of democracy. Now that doesn't make any sense, does it? And interestingly, you know, the president who ran away, Ghani, he left the country, Michael, with a, 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 reputedly 170 million US dollars. Clearly, the, the Afghan sort of forces are, are not the people involved in that aren't stupid. They aren't going to, uh, would you? I wouldn't. They're not going to die for a man who at the first, you know, glimpse of a problem here has, has departed the country with 170 million US dollars. And I think a really interesting sort of, uh, the, the alternative to that, the converse is the British ambassador who's still over there signing people's visas. That's what public service looks like. Ghani clearly isn't in that mold and he's left. So why are they going to fight for a guy who's a coward and who ran away at the first sight of trouble? So does Keir Starmer want Ghani still to be the president? Does he still think that Ghani's a legitimate president? You've left the country, you've got the first plane to Tajikistan with 170 million US dollars, and people are saying that the government you oversaw was really corrupt, and basically things weren't getting done, and money was being siphoned off left, right, and centre, but we think you'd be the perfect person to run this country. Uh, and by the way, I mean, again, what we have to work out here. Let's get the details down, Michael, of this alternative reality that they're building. We have a military alliance led by the Brits, the Americans aren't there, okay. And Ghani's the president. This is a guy who just ran off with 170 million US dollars. This is like a fairy tale, Michael. This is like children speculating about what they're gonna do when they're the king of England, right? It has no basis in serious, pragmatic foreign policy debate. And that's what's really remarkable about this. And we see it time after time now with the center, the rotten extreme center in Anglo-American politics, is that the people who talk about being sensible and pragmatic, they often sound like the most idealistic, kind of, you know, ridiculously emotional people you can, you can, you can conceive of. And that we have a responsibility to all the people looking around the world that want freedom. Let, let's start with the, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. 
Okay, let's start with Yemen. No? Let, let's start with all these places as well. We can start with Oman, Bahrain, or all these other regimes that we're, we're quite friendly with. No, we're going to stay in Afghanistan and, and we're going to commit even more soldiers and more money. No, thank you. I mean, for me, I don't know about you, Michael, I don't know about our audience. I was watching yesterday and I thought, thank God we're out. Thank God. And we've seen protests today. Maybe we're going to talk about it later. Afghans flying the Afghan flag. If anybody is going to change that country for the better, it's going to be those people. And God bless them. I hope they do. I really hope they do. But it's not about, oh, you have to help them. How could you leave them? It is physically impossible to impose liberal democracy on a country with bombs and bullets. It can't happen. It cannot happen. And Afghanistan is flanked by Iran and by Pakistan. You might not like them. They're not particularly nice regimes, but women have the vote. In Pakistan, there, there was a woman president. In Iran, they produce more women graduates than men. Afghanistan can be like that. It doesn't need white people with guns and, 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 and F-35s and aircraft carriers. It can happen. And it's the only conditions under which it can happen is them doing it themselves. And I think this is something which can't really get into the head of people like Starmer and the coterie of fools around him in the Labour Party. There is not a single country on the face of the earth with liberal democratic values, with a majoritarian electoral system imposed by a foreign force. And people say, what about Germany? What about, you know, Italy, Japan after the war? That wasn't in an era when you were fighting against guerrilla warfare. That was conventional war. Two countries, they had recognised political leaders. And prior to that, they were affluent liberal societies. Other than those examples people cite from the Second World War, it's never, ever happened. Political progress in the Global South has historically come from national liberation struggles. The exact same thing that these people view as toxic. So maybe there's a bit of wisdom in a gentleman, you might know the name of him, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about him later in the show. But all the answers that the people who've been denigrating him for so long, think that they have in foreign policy, they really have zero, zero to offer. And it feels to me, I'll finish on this, Michael, it feels to me that all these, these performative speeches from Johnny Mercer, and he's talking about, you know, I don't know, looking after veterans. Of course, we should look after veterans, but for, for this one week, can we talk about the people of Afghanistan? For this one, this one week, Johnny, one week, one day, even one hour, one speech. It feels like this performative, like you said, Michael, this kind of over-performative response is masking a lot of guilt and masking probably the recognition, and then we'll probably see this in the medium to long term, that the war never should have happened and it had absolutely no moral political basis at all. Because what we're, de what we're dealing with here, Michael, is for 20 years, people like you and me, if we say we, we don't think we should be at war in Iraq, actually, we think peace is quite good. We, we don't think, you know, being like, you know, military, militarily ultra-nationalist, we think that's quite bad. We would be called unpatriotic. Oh, you don't think we should be in Afghanistan? Why do you hate your country so much? Over the weekend, that's gone. That has gone. That entire, the ruling ideology of Anglo-America since the war on terror has evaporated. And I'm fascinated to see what happens next, because I think these are the kind of, these are the screams in the immediate response, but ultimately something's going to have to fill that vacuum. And I don't think it's going to be military, military ultranationalism. It's precisely why Keir Starmer's intervention just sounded so totally odd. Because this language, the challenge of our time is a struggle between those who follow the rules and people who have no care for rules whatsoever. That's George W. Bush language. That's, that's, that's this sort of Manichaean, the world is divided between good and evil, and we have to side with the good, even if it is with bombs and, and bullets. And it's, it's like he hasn't learned anything. And I think you're absolutely right to say it's childish. You know, I saw, I, I read an article by, he's called Lafargue on Twitter. I hope I pronounced that correctly. But he had a, a great piece about the Labour right, where he was suggesting the contradiction of their ideology is this constricting realism at home to say, look, we have to take the world as it is. We can't be particularly ideological. We can't try and radically transform society because that's not how it works. Then you get to foreign policy and suddenly they're like, ah, oh, we can enforce from above liberal democracies everywhere in our image. And if it goes wrong, it's because we've made some little tactical error here or there. Someone made the wrong decision on this day. You know, they never take a step back and say, maybe this whole thing that we think we can just project the world in our image. And by the way, as Aaron says, neocons, liberal interventionists, quite different people. I think lots of these people, the Keir Starmers of the world, do genuinely want to project the world in their image. I don't think they are, you know, cynically trying to just sort of bring about hyper-exploitation, but they are the dupes for the people who do want to bring about hyper-exploitation because what they want is, is a nonsense. And even after a 20-year war, where after 
as we talked about, propping up a government with billions of pounds and training its army with the best military alliance in the world, the most advanced military alliance in the world, it collapses within two weeks. They still think, oh, it must have been that there was a wrong decision here, a, a slightly wrong strategy there. It just doesn't occur to them that this whole edifice you've built up where we can fight these ideological wars abroad, telling people we're going to bring them freedom when they didn't ask to be invaded, is a sham. What made me sort of laugh is that, you know, you cannot, we cannot get a deal. We cannot get a deal if we'd stay there, if the Americans were still there. There would not have been a sustained political agreement between the Taliban, between the, the government that was headed up by Ghani, without the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians, and, 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 and realistically the Pakistanis, right? That's what diplomacy, that's what diplomacy is. Diplomacy is when you do things with people you don't like. If you're only gonna do things with people you like, you physically, pathologically incapable of diplomacy. And so I look at Lisa Nandy and she's saying about how we should still be there. And the people that she would have to work with if we were to stay there and for it not to be a route, for it to not be like 1842, right? And literally for everybody we deploy there to die, for that to work, it would require working with these people. Now, Lisa Nandy, I think basically favors regime, regime change in Iran, in Russia, and she wants to impose sanctions on China. We're a country of 65 million people, Michael. So it adds another layer to this thing of like hubris and, and, and these childish fantasies about building liberal democracy overseas at the end of a barrel of a gun. And at the same time, you won't work with, let's, let's be real, China is, is Asia's unrivaled superpower. It is. And you're, not, you're, 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 you're gonna do that without the Americans and you're not even gonna talk to the other people either. And these people want to form a government. God help us, Michael. You know, often we say, well, Britain's only a medium-sized country. 65 million people. We've got better people than that to be the foreign secretary or the shadow foreign secretary. My God, how could you have somebody who, who is physically incapable of diplomacy? She she literally won't work with people that she disagrees with. You're, you're the last person I want to be the foreign secretary, Lisa Nandy. I'm sorry. She would be no better than any conservative, clearly. Clearly, I mean, what would she do as a foreign secretary, which would be better? She's favoring us staying there without the Americans and that without working a single one of the regional powers that matter. You're not interested in actually getting a successful outcome. You're a Puritan, you're an ideologue. And it's an ideology which has just been found out after 20 years failed war in Afghanistan. We have big problems, Michael, because sadly, this is this is not just most of the political establishment, it's most of the media too. They, they think, they still think they're right. What's it going to take? I mean, that's an open question to our audience, because I, I have no idea. Um, let's go straight on to our next story. After their successful military campaign to take over Afghanistan, the Taliban have begun a PR campaign to win legitimacy. To that end, the group hosted an unprecedented press conference on Tuesday in Kabul. The conference was hosted by the Taliban spokesperson, Zabihullah Mujahid, who had never before shown his face to the media. The first task Mujahid had set himself was to reassure the international community. It is very understandable the international community is expressing worries about the security and about Afghanistan. But I reassure all internationals, the UN, all embassies, to all our neighbors that we will not be allowing the soil of Afghanistan to be used against anybody. We assure them, we keep our promises and we keep the Islamic Emirates' promises. It was, of course, allowing al-Qaeda to operate in their territory and plan the 9-11 attacks that would end the Taliban's last period of rule. So you can see why they might want to reassure other countries it's not going to happen again. As I say, it's probably too early to take their word for it. The Taliban didn't just limit themselves to suggesting only those outside the country had nothing to fear from their rule. Here, the spokesperson tried to reassure those Afghans remaining in the country who had worked for the Americans. I want to reassure all our countrymen, whoever has worked in the military, in translation, we have given amnesty to everybody. There is no revenge. All those young people who have talent, who have got education, we don't want them to leave. We want them to hear, to be here in Afghanistan, work for their own country. 
I reassure all of them, no one will go after them, no one will ask them why you worked with or why you translated for the Americans or you supported them. Now, that was a really interesting statement, I thought, especially because of the statement that the spokesman made that he doesn't want young people to leave. This reminded me of a conversation we had with Anatol Levin last Friday. He was saying one of the, the key determinants of what kind of regime the Taliban implement will be whether or not they decide that they need technocrats. Do they need educated middle class people to help run the country and to help grow the economy? Now, if we take this man at his word, potentially they do. Again, too early to say that's going to be a, a frequent refrain in this section, I'm afraid. Finally, the issue about which most is still unknown and about which there should be the most concern is how the Taliban will treat women. Last time they were in power, women were virtually erased from public life. There were horrific punishments for things like adultery. They've suggested this time will be different. This is what the spokesperson said on that topic. Our God, our Quran says that women is a very important part of our society. They can work, they can get education, they were needed in our society, and they will be actively involved. If the international community is worried about these issues, we will tell them there will be no uh, nothing against women in our ruling. Our people accept. Our women are Muslims. They they accept Islamic rules. If they uh, continue to live according to Sharia, we will be happy. They will be happy. It goes without saying that is a very big if if they live according to Sharia. Now. That can mean many different things. Sharia can be applied in a very radical way, which means that you stone people to death for adultery, or it can mean that, you know, a system of justice, you'll have headscarves and you'll have a, a particular type of judiciary making decisions um, according to the Quran. So that, that, that can look like, that, that can look many different ways, basically. Again, as I say, that common refrain, it's too early to say. To discuss how seriously we should take the Taliban's claims, though, I spoke earlier to Obadullah Bahir, a university lecturer in Kabul. I started by asking him if we should believe what the Taliban said at Tuesday's press conference. Well, I think you have the luxury of not believing it. I think uh, people in Afghanistan right now don't have any other option but to cling to the hope that all of this is true. The idea is that the Taliban are have in the past shown a certain level of incongruence between what they've been saying and what they've been doing. They have had such statements before. However, ground realities in provinces have been different. The difference between then and now is that now their leadership is going to be in Afghanistan. So the same excuse of insubordination in such cases that they used to refer to um, is going to be there no more. Now, what happens is people who have a higher stake in this future are apprehensive that much of what the Taliban are saying are for international appeasement, and this is timed uh, until the last soldier leaves, then the Taliban behavior would change. Um, and all of that is based on assumptions as well. Uh, the reality is we have to wait for them to form a government and then see how much accommodation they have within them for conflicting views, for um, newer ideas. How much does it matter how that government is formed? I understand negotiations are still going on at, at the moment. Will the big moment where we know whether they're for real be the one where they say who they are going to invite into their government and who they aren't going to invite into their government? I think that would be a good start um, with regards to really knowing how they plan on moving forward because they have had a past where they didn't have much international recognition. When they were here in the 90s, there was a time when they did approach the UN, they did approach the United States, and they did try to get international recognition, but that didn't work for them. So hoping that in itself as a memory is a deterrent enough for them to change behavior, modify their behavior this time around. So it starts with how inclusive the government is 
And then from that way, that way forward, we have to see how they form their specific commissions, what the education uh, policies are going to be like, what general government policies are going to be like. Um, and all of that is going to be very closely linked with the quality of life that people um, perceive uh, for themselves as well under the Taliban. So um, there have been protests yesterday in Jalalabad, um, or I think today against the Taliban, and they tried to hoist the Afghan flag back up. Um, and I'm hoping that this is not the start of things to come, and the Taliban really need, is, need to expedite their process of forming a government, because the longer a political vacuum stays, the more people get anxious with regards to what the Taliban have in store. Um, so yeah, it starts with the government and then we see the rest of the policy, policies follow. Um, and it's very closely linked as to what the bodies look like that are um, making these policies. So the more inclusive the institutions, the more inclusive the policies are going to be. One of the points that I thought was particularly interesting in that press conference was um, the spokesperson saying, we don't want young, educated people to leave the country. We want them to stay here and, and help rebuild the country. Presumably, you would fall into that, that category of, of people, an educated class in, in Afghanistan, who they say they want you to stay. Do you believe them when they say that? And are you considering should I up sticks and leave or should I stay and, and, and try and help rebuild a new Afghanistan? When they say that, what do they mean? Do they mean they would prefer these people to stay or they block them from leaving? Because they both have very different ramifications. The Taliban for 20 years have been the enemy. So their image constructed in the heads of the post 90s generation is one of savage, violent people who cannot um, accommodate uh, conflicting opinions. Um, and that's not a world that a lot of these young people would want to live under. Um, for my case specifically, I have, I have certain safety nets. I have a certain background that helps enable me to raise the voice and shake the bush more than other people can. And I'm planning on using that. And I'm planning on using my um, my roots here um, and try to uh, act as that devil's advocate, try to act like someone who is going to not compromise um, on the vision of the world that we had. So um, when we're trying to reconcile the two worlds that the Taliban had and what the generation that grew up after them have, uh, there, there have to be people that can give um, newer ideas, because if it's just the Taliban making the decisions and every one of us leaves, there are going to be people here um, that will have to suffer due to those policies. So I guess uh, Uncle Ben said it right, with great power comes great responsibility. And those of us who can raise a voice have to raise a voice. We owe it to the people. What do you think the role is at this point for outside countries to try and pressure the Taliban to stick to their word? What leverage do they have and, and how should they best use it? They have all the leverage in the world. They have the relief of sanctions. They have foreign aid. They have international recognition. All these cards are in their hands. Uh, and these are things that the Taliban do care for. And we see that from how they weren't in a rush to move into the presidential palace and announce their government. The fact that they're still having their leadership come here and lead, meet political leaders within Kabul is a sign, uh, is a good sign. It shows that they really do care about how the international community perceives them. We heard Justin Trudeau say that uh, they would not accept a Taliban-run government. So yeah, they're, they're, the international community still holds a lot of cards and they can help in enabling um, the, the voices of the youth um, and, and women in Afghanistan to help create a society that is livable. If they do want to stop the brain drain, they need to create a world that is um, that is, a, is 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 good enough for these people to stay. Because people decided to cling on to the tires of a plane and fall to their death, but not live under the Taliban regime. That is very bad PR uh, for Taliban, um, and they should realize that whoever their opponent were, managed to create this image and this fear of them. 
and it's time for them to rebrand. And they can rebrand by taking safe, smart steps to show these people that the world that is being constructed now is one that has space for them. So, um, yeah, it's now or never. The, the international community has done a lot of bad to Afghanistan uh, with a lot of mistakes, uh, supporting corruption, uh, the un irresponsible withdrawal from Afghanistan, the shutting off of borders, uh, I, the too little, too late with regards to the immigration that they're offering Afghans now. After all of that, the least the international community can do is engage with the Taliban and help enable uh, voices other than the Taliban to make sure that uh, the newer world is one uh, that is sustainable. MPs at the moment in Westminster are having a big debate about the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover. It seems to me really the consensus which is being put forward by our MPs is that essentially this was a good war, that for those 20 years that Western troops were there, they were securing freedom, they were increasing security, and that it was by leaving that they have abandoned Afghanistan. And I wanted to know what, what your thoughts are on, on that particular interpretation of, of what's happened over the past week and what's happened over the past 20 years. The mission for Afghanistan was an utter failure. Uh, the, its failure can't just be summarized in the way it ended, in the way that they left. It also can be seen in the way that it was conducted. Any war that protects for that long is already a lost war. The idea that the West came here with extreme cultural insensitivity, they didn't recognize what these people were willing to accept what they weren't, alienated the local population, brought in diaspora to rule the country that really didn't understand the country much either, alienated uh, the local leaders, the same local leaders who then stood up by the Taliban, even with regards to the addre addressing the basic needs of the people. So um, there's this policy of how you need the insurgents swim, right? So that means you have to address basic needs to make sure more and more insurgents don't end up um, picking up arms. And they managed to feel that because uh, you go to rural Afghanistan, it, it's the same rural Afghanistan it was before the West came, it's the same rural Afghanistan after the West went. So you can go around and, and absolve yourself of responsibility and say, well, we did pay them money, but that's like throwing money at a fire, right? So what did you do to contain the fire? Why were you enabling corrupt politicians? Why did you not have a plan for the Afghan peace process? Why did the United States sign a peace deal and had no idea what the Afghan political settlement would look like? Um, why did the West not have a regional approach and try to reconcile the different visions for Afghanistan that the neighbors had? Um, so, the, and the list goes on. Uh, neither was the start of the war a smart approach, neither was the end of the war a smart approach. And who suffers at the end of the day? The common Afghan. Um, there are people patting themselves on the back for a successful mission, other people saying that it wasn't, but no one really talks about the agency and the suffering of the common Afghan. 9-11, people jumped out of burning buildings, jumped to their deaths because they thought that was a better option. In 2021, Afghans cling on to airplane tires to fall to their death, right? And this vicious cycle will keep repeating on and on and on because every time the West comes in here from its imperial colonial times, it destabilizes the society, it leaves fragile states, it goes back and then eventually the society and the world here haunts them, then they come back again and then we restart over. When is this going to stop? And it only stops when sustainable um, and stable governments are formed here. And when the West, rather than being run by their own national interests, really care for the welfare of the Afghan society and the Afghan people. And now is a time to break that vicious cycle, because if you don't, this will come back to the West again. And I really hope it doesn't. And I do not want us or our generations following us to start this all over and have to go through all of this. We've suffered enough. Let's just try to be human for each other again.
That was Obeidullah Bahir speaking to me earlier today in Kabul. We're going to go straight on to our next section. Priti Patel today said she didn't believe the Taliban's PR on women's rights. However, if you are a woman or another oppressed group in Afghanistan, you'll need to join a very long queue to get help from Priti Patel's government. That's because she has announced that over the next 12 months, a bespoke resettlement scheme will only accept 5,000 people. Over five years, the government has committed to resettling a total of 20,000 Afghans. Speaking to Sky this morning, Patel defended the commitment. Well, this isn't just about bringing people over. This is about resettlement, resettling people so that they can begin a new life in the United Kingdom. If we don't do it quickly, they might not be alive. Well, we are working quickly on this. And Why not 20,000 all at once? Primarily because we cannot accommodate 20,000 people all in one go. We have oh, to have yeah. this. Well, actually, I spoke to the Canadians last night, Kay, and they can't. Okay, so what did they, so, they say to you? So I will tell you now what they've Please. said. They have an aspiration for 20,000 people, and that also includes their locally employed staff. So we are talking about this new scheme in addition to the work that we are doing with locally employed staff and other categories that will be included in the repatriation flights that you're seeing. Currently, we're bringing back almost a 1,000 people a day. And when it comes to locally employed staff, we've already brought over 2,000 people back since June this year, and we've had 13 charter flights bringing people back. So look, this is an enormous effort, but I think also there are some really important points to just highlight right now for viewers. We can't do this on our own. No country, no government can do this on their own. So I spoke to my Five Eyes counterparts last night. We have to work together. Um, the Americans, clearly, they are in Afghanistan. They're working with us and our military in terms of securing the airport, helping to facilitate people to get them out of Kabul, get them out of Afghanistan, and in our case, take them to different locations and then come to the UK. But the international community has to work together on this. And it's not about one country saying, we're going to do X. We're all working together to really save lives. And this is effectively what we are doing with our scheme. It's a really disgraceful answer in so many ways. I mean, obviously, the policy is more disgraceful than the answer, but just it was so unpersuasive. She's saying we, a country of 67 million people, a very wealthy country of 67 million people can only possibly resettle a maximum of 5000 people over the next 12 months. What possible explanation for that is there? I'm kind of annoyed there wasn't a follow up saying, like, really? Why? You, 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 your government is so incompetent, you can't possibly manage to resettle more than 5,000 people in a country of 67 million people. It doesn't, it doesn't stack up. The other thing I thought that was, again, kind of disgusting about that answer was Patel pretending that Britain is doing our bit and the problem is that the international community isn't stepping up. We need to get other countries to do their bit as well. Now, this is a complete reversal of the truth. It's a complete reversal of what recent history showed us during the Syrian refugee crisis, the most recent major refugee crisis. We gave, Britain gave asylum to 20,000 people, 20,000 people, similar to what we're offering to Afghans. That compared to 788,000 people who moved to Germany, 788,000 Syrians moved to Germany, 20,000 to Britain. For Sweden, a much smaller country, 173,000. That's, of course, not to mention the three and a half million resettled in Turkey or the one million in Lebanon. We are the bad guys. We are the ones not pulling our weight. So for a home secretary of this country, who's been one of the stingiest countries when it comes to resettling refugees to say, oh, the problem is the rest of the world. It's it, it's gross. It's it's wrong. It's false. It's misleading. And I mean, it's callous given the context, given given what she is talking about. So how did we get here and why is Britain so stingy when it comes to refugees? I'm joined by Tim Nayar Hilton, CEO of Refugee Action, a charity which supports people claiming asylum in the UK. Tim, could you start by giving me your reaction to the announcement on Afghan refugees which was made by the government today? Hi Michael, thanks very much for having me on the on the show. Um, so the, the situation in Afghanistan obviously is absolutely clear for civilians. We have Afghan friends and colleagues and people that we work with who are desperately scared, uncertain whether to stay in their houses, whether to flee. The situation is absolutely dire. Given that, it is a positive step. UK government um, has committed to 20,000 Afghans to be resettled in this country. However, this is just a start. It's nowhere near enough what is needed. So just to be clear, they're only talking about 5,000 in the first year, and then the rest could be spread over 
10, 15, 20 years. There's no end point to this program at all. So, you know, some people could potentially be waiting for decades to be resettled. What we want to see is at the absolute minimum, a doubling of that commitment to 10,000 a year to use this as a springboard for a global resettlement program, a full global resettlement program like the one that was announced in the middle of 2019 um, as an ongoing program to deal with not just the problem or the issue or the crisis that exists today, but the next crisis and the one after that, and also all the intractable refugee problems that resettlement programs were primarily designed for. And what we need to ensure, therefore, is that the UK government's approach to resettlement is based on principles rather than headlines. And the fear at the moment is that this announcement is just a, just a headline. I think it's also worth making the point that resettlement takes time. It's a process that first of all, you have to cross a border. And secondly, there's a process around, uh, around, around ensuring that resettlement is the right approach for people. It takes time. It's not an emergency response. And if we're talking about the people trapped right now in Afghanistan and unable to get out, the government need to organise some kind of emergency evacuation programme. And it would be utterly disingenuous of them to imply that this announcement today is, uh, is going to solve that particular problem. And the final point I just want to make is all of these, this announcement could be being used by the government as a cover for their assault on the UK asylum system. So the anti-refugee bill that is currently going through Parliament and has just passed its, um, its second reading punishes rather than protects people. You know, if you take an example of, a, of an Afghan family who um, have experienced persecution and potentially gender-based violence, but have not got onto one of these programmes, that family may well be forced to take the most dangerous to claim asylum in a Western European country. If they do that, under this new legislation, they will be treated completely differently from the people going through these programmes. They will be shipped off potentially to an offshore island, they'll be warehoused in barrack-style accommodation, and they'll be given very, very different rights from, uh, from people who come through, um, come through a formal resettlement programme. So we need to be really, really clear. On the one hand, we've got Dominic Raab, Dominic Raab saying we're a big-hearted nation. And then on the other hand, we've got the government pushing this small-minded anti-refugee bill through Parliament. And they need to sort that out. That bill needs to be, needs to be torn up. And we need to commit to an asylum process that's a programme. Tim Nea Hilton, we are having still some problems with the connection, so we'll leave the interview there. But thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. Super insightful stuff. We are going to go to our next story and our final story. Since taking control of Afghanistan, the Taliban have been keen to portray themselves as a more moderate force than the organisation which ran the country in the 1990s. And in that attempt to change their image, they've gained a surprising ally, the chief of the British Army. And how do you feel about collaborating with the enemy when um, they have carried out such atrocities against um, UK military personnel over the years? I think you have to be very careful using the word enemy. Um, I think people need to understand who the Taliban actually are. And of course, what they are, a disparate collection of tribespeople. As President Karzai put it to me only yesterday, they're country boys. Uh, and the plain fact is that they happen to live by a code of honour and a standard which has been their standard for many, many years. It's called Pashtun Wali. It has honour at the heart of what they do. They are bound together by a common purpose, which is they don't like corrupt governance. They don't like governance that is self-serving. And they want an Afghanistan that is inclusive for all. So I think rather than talking Except about... Except women. The, what? Except women. Um, well, again, I think we have to wait and see. I mean, I don't know what they mean. We can't support the, the way that they treat women. We, we, surely. Well... I think you have to listen to what they're saying at the moment, and I think you have to listen to the facts on the ground. Saying they that are have definitely, to abide they by are Sharia definitely, law. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's anything that you and I would approve of particularly. I'm just but I do, that. I, absolutely, but I do think that they have changed. I think they recognise that over the course of the last 20 years, Afghanistan has evolved. They recognise the fundamental role that women have played in that evolution. And yes, they at the moment will undoubtedly say that they want to respect women's rights under Islamic law, and that will be a Sharia law. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't allow them to be involved in government and in education and in medicine and those things that they need them to be involved in. So I think we have to be patient. We have to give them the space to show how they are going to step up to the plate. And whether or not we can work with them will very much depend upon how they treat all Afghans. That was Sir Nick Carter, Chief of the Defence Staff. Since giving that interview, he's taken a lot of heat for taking the Taliban at 
their word. Lynn O'Donnell is a journalist in Afghanistan. She tweeted, British army lines to take. General Sir Nick Carter calls the murderers, liars, misogynists and drug dealers of the Taliban reasonable, changed. And there we were thinking he was a serious person, a fool, an apologist, an embarrassment and liability. Shame on you, Andrew Neil, who you'll know as chair of GB News, former um, star host at the BBC. UK chief of defence joins Taliban PR team. Didn't he tell us a few months ago that the Afghan army was a formidable fighting machine? So Nick Carter's also getting some flack because he said um, that the Afghan army would be able to defeat the Taliban. Labour's shadow foreign secretary Lisa Nandy called the comments unpalatable. That was speaking to Sky shortly after that interview. Personally, I do think Nick Carter did sound a bit naive in that clip saying the thing that, you know, gels the Taliban together is they're against corruption and also completely taking them at their word that they want an Afghanistan that is inclusive to all is, I think, going way too far. You should be a lot more critical of what these people are saying than than that, given what they did in the past and what they've been doing more recently. At the same time, I did think it was interesting having the boss of the British army avoid some of the tropes that we get from some of our you know, quite hawkish liberal politicians, which is to just see the Taliban as something which is evil incarnate, which it would be um, wrong to even negotiate with on any level. It, it did seem like he had a more nuanced take than some people we heard in the House of Commons today, for example, even if clearly, as I say, he got some things wrong. Aaron, what did you think of the comments there from Sir Nick Carter and also the response to them? Yeah, it was... At one point, I was almost expecting him to say, "Therefore, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, for the many, not the few." You know, he was. It was like it was like he was eulogising, you know, the social justice element of the Taliban, which not even you know, not even Taliban public relations people do. And I, I'm sure that's that's part of what they offer their domestic audience, and I, I don't doubt it. Um, and, and clearly, the sort of the way they're represented in the West, these evil, monstrous ogres, I and mean, there's obviously a great deal of truth to it. But that can't be the only side to them, because clearly to emerge that quickly, they have they have some consent from somewhere. I know it's really hard for a Western audience to accept, but that's because we're not in receipt of all the facts. You know, if you were a part of a wedding party and your entire extended family was killed in a drone strike, you probably would look to them uh, uh, as the people capable of transforming the country for the better. I'm not I'm not legitimizing anyway. I don't agree with what he said, but I agree with, with, with what you just said there, Michael, which is there is a really interesting contrast. And I thought the person who really struck it perfectly well was the superb guest you got on Monday, Michael. Uh, the academic Paul, what's his? Mm. Paul, Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers, amazing. So he had a political sensitivity to the, to the situation in Afghanistan, wasn't going to caricature the people there, because it is really important to say that the, 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 the Taliban of today are very different to the Taliban of, of 20 years ago. Why? Well, it's one of the youngest countries on earth is one thing. You know, I think about half the country is basically 18 or under. They have literally no memory of the Taliban. That includes many of the younger people that are fighting for them. The, the, the sort of pr preceding 20 years before we go there is, of course, civil war and more the USSR. The last 20 years has been more civilizing. I not say there was a civilizing mission, but clearly there's been the emergence of civil society. There's been attempts at elections, increased literacy, etc. Not all good. For instance, poverty has also increased. But clearly the, the context of the last 20 years now with the rise of the Taliban is very different to the, the first time we had the Taliban, Taliban, Taliban 1.0. So I can kind of see what he's getting at. Maybe it might not be as terrible as the first time. Maybe there'll be the space for civil society and women and, and ethnic minorities and so on to change things for the better. Maybe, but it was, yeah, the tone he said wasn't that, you know, it was almost like, I actually got a message from somebody after the interview and they said, you know, maybe the British army, maybe the Brits are in on this, you know, because <laughs> it was like a really, I don't, I don't think, I don't think the person that messaged me thinks that, but it was a really strange, you know, it's just senior military guy to say these things. Maybe he was overcompensating, you know, maybe that the, the, the fundamentally now the, the, the British army know they're going to have to work with the, the Taliban at least the next couple of weeks, months to get people out, get service personnel out, NGOs out. So he probably thinks he might have to say these things because there's also a foreign audience which is watching what we say. It's not just a domestic audience. That said, it was still overkill. I, I think your your final hypothesis is quite possible, actually, because he did also say in that interview, he was asked, why did you say that Ashraf Ghani and the Afghan army could still win this? I think you know, Andrew Neil said months ago, I think he said it as recently as, 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 as last week. And he said that was to try and give confidence 
to the Afghan army. So he's saying, I didn't say it because I believed it. I said it for strategic reasons because I wanted the Afghan army to, well, they'd, they'd have had to have been subscribers to the Times. Um, so again, slightly implausible, but you can see why he might rationalize what he says as serving a particular tactical or strategic purpose. Again, as I said, I mean, we can, we both agree that many of the things he said there were silly and, and wrong. At the same time, there are so many MPs who I think do just see the Taliban as evil incarnate, they see the Western propped up government is this liberal, democratic, you know, wondrous thing that everyone loves. And that does ignore a lot of the reality on the ground. I was reading an Economist article from 2019, actually. Super interesting. It was saying for um, the truck drivers they interviewed in Afghanistan, the difference between the Taliban and the Afghan government was that when the Taliban taxed you going down the street, they gave you a receipt. So you'd only get taxed once. Whereas with the Afghan government, you get taxed at every checkpoint by every different military leader because it is, well, according to this article, and it does seem, you know, according to, to lots of what has been written, that while the Taliban, yeah, morally repugnant in so many ways, they might be less corrupt than the Afghan government as it existed. And for many people, that is going to be one of the more important things when it comes to who do you want to rule you? Again, this is not to say I think Taliban rule is going to be a good thing, but it's to say that clearly the speed at which they took over the country means they have some legitimacy and they have some legitimacy, not because all of the Afghan people who support the Taliban just hate women. It's because they are providing something which the US prop government was unable or unwilling to provide. Aaron, you want to come back in on this? I think it's important to say that there does seem to be some sort of, and you know, we just had a great guest on from, live from Kabul saying that the, the war, the intervention of Afghanistan after 2002, October, 2000, October 2001 rather, was a, was a failure. I think it's it's hugely important that somebody in Kabul is saying that, while we have British politicians saying, no, it wasn't a failure. I know whose opinion is more valuable. It's it's really, really, really important that people don't just think, oh, well, the regime under Ghani and previously under Karzai, you know, they were all university graduates and they were all going for lattes and on social media on phones. It's just so fatuous and childish. It's, you know, the world is not like that. I, I find this so strange, Michael. It's almost like we never had anthropology. And we, we never had the idea that different societies just operate in quite different ways. And that somehow, the, you know, Ghani is the good guy. And there was, like you say, no corruption. Fundamentally, what do people care about? The same things they care about everywhere. Housing, security, jobs, infrastructure, prospects for your children, health. And if that's not being provided, you'll look elsewhere. That, that's what it boils down to. And I don't see why it's so hard for people to get their heads around that. Why is it so hard? And they had they had a long time, they had 20 years of a different way of doing things imposed by a foreign power. And it, 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 hasn't, it hasn't really done very much for them. It hasn't done very much for them. Of course, you can, we can talk about huge increase in women's rights, people going to school and so on. But if you're looking at, you know, poverty, if you're looking at, you know, yeah, income deprivation, access to certain, you know, certain social goods, not really. And they look at Iran next door. Again, people have criticisms of Iran, but it's an Islamic Republic. You know, it's a theocracy. And they look at Pakistan, a very religious country. And now they're occupied by America and both have a far higher standard of living. Now, there's a bunch of reasons why they're historically wealthier than Afghanistan. Iran had oil. Pakistan is a affluent country, part of South Asia by comparison to Afghanistan. But it's, it's not outlandish to look at those two countries next to you. Look at your own mismanaged country. Everything that matters to you isn't really being provided by the government and to look elsewhere. I, I don't get why this is so unthinkable. Maybe I'm missing something. Well, I think the reason it is unthinkable is because people that live in rich, stable countries, they take all of that for granted. So you, you don't even notice the fact that one of the big priorities for people who, who live in countries which aren't historically rich or stable is to have stability and to have some financial security, right? So the stellar creases of the world, they take that for granted so much that they think, well, of course you would support a corrupt, incompetent government which... It, which which respects women's rights as opposed to a less corrupt and slightly more competent but misogynist one. Now, uh, you know, I don't want to make that horrible choice between those two governments, but it's not completely irrational to choose one over the the other, you know. And I mean, you know, if the Americans didn't want the resurgence of the Taliban, what they should have built is a company is a country which respected women's rights and wasn't incredibly corrupt and which did bring wealth and development to the countryside because they didn't do those things. That's why we're in this particular situation. Maybe you can't do those things with guns and you know with planes and bullets, as we, as we've suggested already. There are no good options here. Can I come Aaron, back in quickly? Want, as well? one yeah, more, do you want your one final thing? Final word tonight. Yeah, I, I just, I just again, it's, it boils down to this Western European pathology. We we can't do that. We can't change. We can't change these things. You know, there are a bunch of ways you can support. You can support civil society organisations. You can you can you know support changes in domestic policy, which would create more 
you know, overseas development aid or a fairer trade policy or more generous <clears throat> migration asylum policies. But you can't, I just don't understand where this comes from. Like in, 19, in 1988, you had the Iran-Iraq war. You had nine, nine years after the Iranian revolution. The situation for Iranian women was far worse than it is today. The situation, I'm not saying it's perfect. It's not, it's not perfect, far from perfect. Actually, Iran has many, many things wrong with it. But the situation for women in Iran today is much better than it was in 1988. And that's entirely because of civil society leadership exercised by women and allies inside Iran. And it was fundamentally no different to what happened here in women's rights. You know, you have the American Revolution in the 1770s. America is not a revolution, a, a democratic republic, I think, until after the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s. You know, it takes America almost 200 years to get its house in order when it came to civil political rights and racial equality. Now, Iran has a revolution in 79. You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, well, you get 50, 60, 70 years right? So when people say, oh, do you, should there be regime change in Iran? No, because I don't want Iran to look like Afghanistan or like Libya. Should there be massive political reform in Iran? Of course there should be, absolutely. And that has to be generated by people inside the country with support, of course, from the, the labor movement overseas and, and people who share certain values and internationalist kind of principles, of course. But we, we can't change that. That's not how politics works. It's not how politics works. And anything you impose on these countries is not going to be very enduring. You, and people, people say, oh, Aaron, that's horrible. How could you? We can have a difference of opinion, but we've already gone over this, Michael. There are no sort of historical examples of that happening. You look at the modernization of Japan or you look at, you know, changes in other parts of the global south. It, it, they come from movements inside these countries. I, I don't know what else to say. You know, we can't we, we, we can't say here's a triangle. It's got three sides. Well, actually, I think it should have four sides. You might want it to have four sides, but we live in the world we live in. And again, you know, what's so strange about this whole debate with the, with the left, Mike, is often the left are presented as ideologues, impractical, utopian. But actually, all that stuff really applies to kind of liberal analysis of this about, you know, you know we can build liberal democratic states. Uh, they can be imposed from above. We can have, you know, regime change, the better, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, my God, there's never been a more utopian project in the history of humanity, and it's failed catastrophically. That is a very um, apt way to end the show. I think great points there. That's it for now. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. Do hit the subscribe button if you have not already to make sure you don't miss that. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Novara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com support.